are so glad you're here this morning. Let's look at the side screens. I'm going to read some scripture for us out of the Gospel of John. We're in John this week. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and she said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight to the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, well, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I'm not going to believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. That event is known as the greatest event in all of history. And every one of us in this room, we know that that event changed culture, changed the calendar, changed the history, and has changed the trajectory of your life. But it all kind of boils down to this. Either it did or it didn't happen. Either he rose from the grave or he didn't rise from the grave. Because Christianity is not based on a teacher. It's not based on teachings. It's not based on beliefs. It's not even based on behavior. The essence of Christianity is based on either it did or it did not happen. Either he rose from the grave or he did not rise from the grave. And every one of us in this room have had to kind of figure that out. What do I think about this? What's the evidence? 
what would lead, lead me to lean toward believing that it actually took place? And every one of you have gone through this. Every one of us in this room have had to think through this. Do I really think that a dead guy got up and rose, got out of a grave? And so every one of us in this room, we're in one of about three different camps. All of us in this room can be placed, just like everybody in the world, in one of three camps. And so here's the first camp. The first camp is we've surrendered. And many of you in this room, you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Many of you in this room go, I do believe. I'm convinced. And so there are billions of billions of people who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. Number two, the second camp, the second group would be people who are searching. And maybe that's you in this room today. And lots of people are trying to search. Now, here's what takes place in sermons all over the world today. All over the world today, pastors are trying to help those of you in this camp to move to the first camp. They're trying to help those of you that are searching to make sense out of it all. And so the sermons will go something like this. If you're making up the whole story, would you have had, you know, um, the women be the first eyewitnesses to the tomb? Because we all know that in that culture, the women couldn't even testify in a court of law. So if you're making it up, would you have the women be the first eyewitnesses? And also, would you have, if you're making it up, would you have Mary Magdalene be the very first eyewitness? That's the woman that seven demons were cast out of. Why would you have her? And and by the way, if you're making the whole thing up, wouldn't you? These are sermons. They're good sermons. I've preached them. They're all over the world today. If you were making this all up, would you have all the disciples believe that he was dead and wasn't coming back alive? I mean, think about this. Nobody was at the tomb thinking he would come back from the dead. There wasn't a choir. There wasn't a band. There wasn't a countdown. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. I told you he'd rise from the dead. That didn't happen. That's a good sermon. Everybody thought the party was over. The parade was over. The train had stopped. It got derailed. Nobody expected a resurrection. That's a great sermon. Great sermon. And so today, all over the world, people are giving you information and and, and educating on why there is empirical evidence to believe. Another good sermon is, how did they go from cowards to courageous? Great sermon. These guys were cowards. They were behind locked doors. They're underneath the, you know, kitchen table or whatever for fear. They're freaked out of the Jews. And just a few days later, They're boldly standing before Caiaphas and Annas, boldly proclaiming, we have seen the resurrected Lord. Those are great sermons. But you're not going to hear that today. I'm going to go a completely different direction today. God has laid something on my heart today that I want to share with you. But again, it all boils down to either he did or he did not rise from the dead. This isn't about a teacher. This isn't about teachings. This isn't about beliefs. This isn't about a behavior. It's about an event. The event. It did or it did not happen. Now, I believe it happened. And many of you believe that it happened. And there's billions of people today in this world that believe that it happened. Now, because of that, then, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We believe that he's king. We believe that he's Lord. And so because of that, we take the scriptures and what Jesus said very seriously. 
Jesus made three audacious promises, and we're going to look at one of those. But he made three audacious promises that if he is the Messiah, and if he really did rise from the dead, we've got to take that seriously. But here's the first one. The first promise he said was, I'm going to build my church. Now, when Jesus said this, they didn't know what a church was. What's a church? There was no buildings. There were no elders. There were no deacons. There were no pastors. There were no organizations. When Jesus said, I'm going to build little communities, I'm going to have communities that are going to come together and do life together. I'm going to build biblically functioning communities all over the world. The disciples are going, huh? What's a church? Second of all, he said this. He said, I'm going to put my spirit in every one of my believers. I will give believers my spirit. This is like too good to be true. But for those of you that are Christians, you know that's absolutely true. God speaks to you. God gives you like, go forward, don't go forward. That's a yellow flag. That's a green light. Go forward. That's a red, red light. Stop. I mean, you know God's spirit leads you. Thirdly, third promise was this. He said, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. There's a day when I am coming back. These are three audacious promises. I want to talk about the first one for just a couple minutes. God has laid on my heart what we normally do on this day is we talk about how Jesus came to save you from sin. And that is absolutely true. And that's where you start. But 98% of our sermons are about he came to save you from sin, and we kind of stopped there. Now, you got to start there. You have to start with the sin nature. We have a sin problem. We are sinners. I never will forget it was my shift, and he was at the grocery store. Erica was three. Ethan was two. And they're in Erica's room, and they're playing so nicely together. I'm reading the newspaper back in the day. I'm so nice. And Erica's singing that song, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. She stops, and she says, Ethan, you touch my doll one more time, I'm going to hurt you. (laughs) I kid you not. The next thing out of her mouth was, I've got the joy, 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 joy. There's a sin nature. Just look at children and they've got it. They're there, right? So we understand that we have sin. And Jesus came to save you from sin. I want you to show, see that? He came to save you. Salvation from sin. Absolutely. Don't miss that. It's where it starts. But if you stop there, you miss the other side of the coin. He came to give you salvation for life. Jesus has come to give you life. I want to talk about that today. I think you know the first part. I think you get the first part. I think you know Jesus Christ came, died on the cross, shed his blood, gave his life for you. But because there's more of you here today than any other time of the year, I want you to hear this message. This is a message because it's not just about saving you from your sins. It's about saving you from you. It's about saving you from yourself. He has come to give you salvation for life. I podcast several different preachers during the week, and I like to hear different sermons. I even podcast a couple preachers I don't even agree with. I just like to, you know, how do they, why do they think that way? What makes them think, come up with that doctrine of theology? But one of my favorite ones said this not too long ago, and he said, he said, people always say, well, I don't know where I'd be without the church. He said, I know exactly where I'd be without the church. He said, because before the church, I was a middle school boy. 
And I know exactly how I fought as a middle school boy. He said, before the church, I was a high school young man. And I know exactly what I was doing in high school. And I know exactly how I thought in high school. He said, before I, before I became a pastor, he said, I was a young adult. I was a single male. for ex-. He said, I don't have to think about where I would be without the church. He said, I know exactly where I would be without the church. You see, Jesus didn't just come to save you from sin. He came to save you from you and to give you life. And all of us in this room, we're honest enough and we're smart enough to know that even though we've been saved from our sins, we still got a whole bunch of gunk and junk going on inside of us. So I've heard people say, gosh, you know, before I went to college, I wish I would have heard that message. I did hear that message. I did hear that message from my youth pastor. I hear people say, oh, I I wish I would have heard that message before I got married. I did hear that message before I got married. I started going to Chapel Rock Christian Church in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I heard youth pastors and senior pastors, and I didn't understand all of it. But around 18, 19 years old, I, I began to click, you know, someday I'll probably get married. I began to listen. I hear people say, oh, I wish I would have heard that message before, you know, before I had kids. Oh, my gosh. I did hear that message before I had kids through the local church. And the local church has taught me finances. The local church has taught me leadership. The local church has taught me people skills. You want to know the Bible has more to teach you and to tell you? You want to be a high performer? You want to be a high producer? You want to be successful? The Bible calls it fruitful. You want to be fruitful? The Scriptures teach you how to be all those things. God's Word is going to give you the rails to run on. So this morning, what's on my heart is, yes, if you're not a Christian, yes, I want you to accept Jesus. Yes, I want the blood of Christ. Absolutely. But there's another side of this coin. The local church is here to save you from you. Now, let's be honest. Your greatest mess-ups in life, your greatest snafus, I bet they were when you were not dialed into the local church. The greatest regrets of your life, I bet you made those bad decisions when you were not dialed in to a local church. So what can the local church do? and How can the local church save you from you? Well, I want to give you five or six of those as time permits. Here's the first one. The local church saves you by informing your conscience. The local church informs your conscience. Do you want culture informing your conscience? Do you want the political arena that's taking place every night, the circus? Do you want that to inform your conscience? Man, I had some heathen uncles who tried to inform my conscience. I don't want my heathen uncles informing my conscience. Do you? See, the local church began to inform my conscience. The local church began to teach me that I am accountable on how I treat everyone. The local church began to teach me that I am to treat women as sisters and not as objects of lust. Where did I learn that? I learned that from the local church. Where did I learn about forgiveness? I heard in the local church that if you are bitter, it's like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Right? 
I learned in the local church that when you forgave, you were able to move forward. I learned in the local church the value of faithfulness. I learned in the local church that if I was faithful to God in this and this and this, he would get involved in all those areas of my life. Where did I learn all that? And so when people say, gosh, I wish I'd have heard that message before I went to college, I did. I wish I'd have heard that message before I got married. I did. I wish I'd have heard that message before I had kids. I did. I wish I'd have heard that, that message while I had kids. I did. That's what the local church can do. Here's the second one. Local church does this. It reinforces a general and a specific will for my life. Now, everybody has a general will of God. You can find the general will of God, the Ten Commandments. You can find the general will of God in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot of general will of God. But aren't you glad that God has a specific will for you? And that gets reinforced where? Through the local church. It's in the local church where that specific will. I I, I think about our three children, and we've taught our three children 26, 25, 19, the general will of God. But as they began to age and mature, we could see as moms and dads, we could see the fact that the Heavenly Father had a specific will for their lives. And there's a specific will that God will teach you and tell you, date her, for heaven's sakes, don't text her back, you know, marry him, are you kidding, run from him, Um, you know, buy this, don't buy this, rent, don't rent, you know, move, don't move. There's a a very specific, where do you learn all that? Where, Where do the values that are best for you get reinforced? In the local church. Number three, local church saved me for me because it provides the context for healthy friendships and relationships. The best friendships, the best relationships of your life will come from the local church. I was a freshman in high school, and we had just started going to church. And during that summer, the youth group was going to, from Indianapolis, Indiana, was going to to Oklahoma to a children's home to go there for a week and serve and paint and, and clean up and rake leaves and all that kind of good stuff at a children's home. So I went on the trip. I, I'm, I'm barely saved. I'm not, I'm, I spit and slid under. I mean, I barely was saved, and I'm going on this trip. And so I'm on the painting crew, and I'm not afraid of heights, so I'm at the top of the ladder. I'm at the top of the dorm. And um, this kid underneath me, his name was David Hunt, he says, hey, you're spilling paint on me. And uh, I knew I wasn't spilling paint on him. I was a cocky kid. I was a good painter. My grandpa Brown, who I also didn't want to inform my conscience, but my my grandfathers uh, taught me to paint, and I knew that paint was blowing from this other kid. And so he kept saying, hey, you're you're spilling paint on me. So I had enough of that. When he wasn't looking, I took my bucket, (laughs) poured it right on his head. I acted like it was an accident. I got an Oscar for that, all right? I go back to painting. About 30 minutes later, I'm down on the floor. Yeah, I know a lot about sin. I do. I'm down on the floor uh, on the ground, and I'm getting a drink of water, and I didn't see him coming, and I have my shirt off, and he's got that paintbrush full of paint, and he smacks me in the middle of the back with paint. Paint goes everywhere. We have two youth groups in the greatest paint fight in all of history. It was an epic paint fight. It was awesome. I got in all kinds of trouble that day. David Hunt and I became best friends that day. And we still text each other. We still call each other. Probably shouldn't tell you this story, but a year and a half later, when I'm 16, uh, we stole a church bus. (laughs) 
It was awesome. It was absolutely, it was epic. Um, I'm 16. I got a driver's license. That qualifies me to drive a bus. It's midnight. The youth pastor's asleep. We steal the keys out of the youth pastor's room. And the other three guys are 15. So I'm driving. I'm driving a bus for an hour around St. Louis, Missouri. Oh my gosh, the liability. I think about that. If you're a teenager, don't ever do something like that. It's awful. Became great friends with those guys that, that trip. The men in this church that I'm connected with, we text each other, we call each other, we pray for each other. And you know what our standard is? Our standard's not culture. Our standard's not how we feel. Our standard's not what's best. Our standard are the Scriptures. The standard are the Scriptures because the Scriptures will set you up for success. And I want to encourage you for your children and for your teenagers, this is the context for lifelong healthy relationships. Number four, it gives us a picture that God is working all over the world. We need to be able to see this. We get so locked up in our own little safety harbor or Oldsmar or Palm Harbor bubble, we forget. Our first mission trip, Danita and I and our kids took and we went with the Babcocks, Charlie and Marianne Babcock. And, and we, you've, hear, you've heard about our pastor's conferences that we do in Nicaragua. Well, this is the first one. This is the very first one. And so we fly into Managua. We drive a bus for an hour and a half and then a car, another half an hour or so. And we're way up in the mountains in um, Matagapa. And Charlie and I... We're going to teach these 30 pastors. And by the way, the rich pastor had a donkey. He, he, he rode his donkey. The other pastors all walked from an hour to two hours just to get to the conference. There were 30 of them. And um, we had planned to give them as many sermons as possible. We, we, we had prepared to give them sermons on Samuel and Saul. And I went first. And it's so hot, and the rooster's running all around on stage with me, and I got a translator. And I realized in about 20 minutes into this, they don't know who I'm talking about. Pastors don't have a clue who Samuel is. They don't have a clue who Samson is. They don't know who these great biblical characters are. Charlie's already figured that out in the back. I'm really I'm sweating clear through my underwear now. I'm in trouble, okay? And so the rest of that six hours of that day, we're just teaching them who these biblical characters are. And yet they, were, they have so little, they had so little compared to us. And they were so happy and they were so filled with joy. And I saw God's working here. God's working. God's, I hope you get involved with local missions. I hope you get involved with some global missions. I hope you get involved because in the local church you begin to realize God is doing his thing all over the world. Look at number five. Number five, it reminds me to be wise and generous with money. You want to learn how to manage money? Where did I learn how to make money? The local church. Where did I learn how to invest money? The local church. Where did I learn how to give money? The local church. I had no idea there were 2,352 verses on money. I had no idea the Bible talked more about money than heaven and hell and prayer combined. Amazing. When our kids were small, we got these little mason jars, clear mason jars, and we had a Jesus jar, we had a um, saving jar, and we had a living jar. 
And so they were clear jars. And every time they got a buck, we would give, they would give a dime to Jesus. They would give a dime to savings. And they would have 80 cents worth to, to live on. I'm telling you, you live by that, you will always have money and resources. And where do you learn that? And where's that reinforced? The local church. The tithe is not about money. The tithe, the first 10%, it's always about putting God first. And you learn to save money. Where do you learn that from? The Bible talks a lot about saving money and resources. It all comes from the local church. Number six, shows me the best way to love, lead, and treat my family. Maybe as a young woman, you didn't have a great role model. Maybe your mom or your grandma just didn't have a good marriage and they weren't good role models. Maybe as a young man, your dad or your uncles or your grandfathers weren't good role models. Where can you learn how to be a great wife? Where can you learn how to be a great husband? Where can you learn how to be a great mom, how to be a great dad? The local church. The local church supports that. The local church teaches that. The local church reinforces that. That's what we do. I I got a wonderful father. He's 81 years old, great great dad. But I didn't learn the scriptures about being a great dad from him. I learned them from the local church. It was a local church who taught me my dad's good values, but put scripture to those, and then it all just kind of made sense. You know, when I was a younger preacher, and I'm still extremely young, when I was a younger preacher, when I was a younger preacher, I used to preach, oh, the church needs you. Oh, the church needs you. The church needs you to serve. The church needs you to give. The church needs you to love. Now, I'm not saying the church doesn't need you. I'm not, right now you're going, honey, this church doesn't need us. Let's go to the Lutheran church next week. I, I'm not saying that. We want you. We want you. But the church of Jesus Christ has existed for 2,000 years. And Jesus said, even the gates of Hades would not prevail against the church. The church is going to be here. Church is always going to be here. So I don't teach that anymore. The church needs you. Oh, poor, pitiful church. No, 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 no. You need the church. You need the church more than the church needs you. I I want to have a significant role here. I want to play my part. But, but you don't need me, but I need you. You need the church far more than you could ever dream or ever imagine. The church will keep you on the reservation. The church will keep you on the rails. The church will set you up for incredible success and blessings. It's the context of the local church where we're all working and serving and loving and giving and helping. It's this context where we all make a difference. And so here's this last line I want to show you. Following Jesus will make your life better, but it will also make you better at life. Isn't that really what you want? Yes, following Jesus will make your life better, and it will make you better at everything that you value, everything that's important to you. The local church will make you better and better and better. It's exactly what you want in life. The smartest thing you can do is have your kid here every Sunday. Every Sunday. Smartest thing you could ever do is have your middle school kids with that posse of middle schoolers in that environment. The wisest thing you could ever do 
is get your high schoolers involved with student ministry and student pastors. The wisest thing you can do for your future, your faith, and your family is to be dialed in and connected to the local church. Why? Well, he'll save you from sin, absolutely. But he'll save you for life. And that's what we do together. We do this together. We, we grow together. We love each other. We help each other. I'm your pastor. I want you, obviously, to be saved from your sins. But I want every man, I want every woman in this room to follow Jesus with all of your heart because I know it's the best thing for you. I know you'll have a better life when you stay within the margins of Scripture. I know that. I've done this for 34 years. Pastor Bates has done this for 40 years. We, we get this. We understand this. It's the best thing you could do in your life. You see, this Sunday is not more important than next Sunday. And this Sunday is not more important than last Sunday. So I'm asking you to change your values. I'm asking you to change your vision. Do you have a vision to see how to set yourself up for success? I'm asking you to be wise. There's only three kinds of people, wise, foolish, and evil. There's only three kinds. There's only three. Do you want to be wise? Do you want to be wiser? Then you immerse yourself in the context. See, there's a tsunami of influence in the local church, all in the right direction. Well, here's what Jesus said. I love these scriptures in John 3. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The thief, that's culture, comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. Maybe that's some of your uncles. Maybe that's some of your grandparents. Maybe that's some of your unchurched friends. But Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the abundance. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is so cool. That is so awesome. And that's why we're here today. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come down front. Maybe today is your day to give your life to Christ. We would welcome that. He would love that. But I'm going to ask you to take an action step about the local church. What's your next step? I don't know what your next step is, but you do, because the Holy Spirit's already going ding, 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 here's your next step. What's the next step for you? What's the, what's the next action step for you so that you can be in the local church, be blessed by the local church, be impacted by the local church? What, what's your What's your next step? I don't want you just to come today and hear some awesome music. The team did an awesome job. An awesome job. I just want you to hear a couple scriptures. On I, I, It's time for a step. So what will you do next week? What will you do the week after that? 
What will you do about Scripture? What will you do about prayer? What's your next step? Take a step, and your life, I guarantee it, will be better.